and welcome to another episode of Who Died with Pete and Alex. It's your weekly voyage into some of the famous, infamous, and otherwise noteworthy people who kicked the bucket in the past week. And uh, Pete, I understand we're starting off with the world of sports today. That's right. It's baseball season. So uh, our first honoree uh, this week uh, might not be a household name to you and I, but or to you and me. But um, any the, of us. Uh, hmm? Any one of us. It might not. You might not know. I might not know. But uh, but I do know. It's uh, Manabu Kitabepu. Um, apologies if I'm not pronouncing that entirely correctly. But uh, uh, Manabu Manabu Kitabepu was a, uh, a professional baseball pitcher in Japan. He was the first round pick of the Hiroshima Toyo Carp. 1975, uh, one of the most famous Japanese right-handed pitchers of, of all time, let's say. Um, so good, he was named the Precision Machine. Hmm. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good name. Probably sounds a little cooler um, in, in J- Japanese. Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, uh, Semitsu Kikai. Semitsu Kikai. That sounds pretty tough. Does that sound right? Um because he was such such good control, he was a control. You know, there's not uh, not to oversimplify it. You know, often there's a balance between the two, but speed and control are two important factors. And a, a pitcher who has good control can get along, have a longer career often because they, um, you know, can work around. They're more of a kind of a, a strategic pitcher. And um, uh, he did have a long and storied career. He was a uh, seven times. Uh, all-star in the in the Japanese league, the NBP, uh, 79, 79 through nineteen eighty, so seventy nine, eighty, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four, eighty eight, ninety two. So like seventies, he was drafted in seventy five. Kind of by the late seventies, hit his groove, and then all throughout the eighties into the uh, kind of you know ups and downs, peaks and valleys, strikes and gutters, but the, but kind of kept his career going and going well for a long time. Um, long time. And um, played uh, um, his entire career and and beyond with the Hiroshima Carp. Now, the Hiroshima Carp, uh, also, side note, into the history of the Hiroshima Carp, because they're they're not my favorite, despite I do have a hat, but they're not my favorite um, Japanese baseball team. That was the the uh, Tokyo Yakult Swallows, or basically the Mets of Japan, because they're the... Their little brother team uh, in Tokyo, and so that's that's kind of I, I feel for them. But uh, always, always a great amount of respect for the Hiroshima Carp because they are also kind of symbolic. Um, the team was was uh, founded, I think, four years after the bombing of Hiroshima, and um, have always been kind of symbolic of the the kind of uh, reconstruction, rebirth. It is a little bit odd that it's just like, oh, like the Americans killed a bunch of us. They bombed it, destroyed our city. Let's let's make a team of their national sport. Like let's get really into what they do. Um, which is an interesting, I don't know, whole, whole different cultural discussion. But, uh, but the Hiroshima carp followed, you know, just a couple years after the bombing and, uh, they've been, um, you know, a going concern ever since. It's interesting. Their name is, is the Toyo carp because they, um, the original, the company that owned them, a lot of you know, the Japanese teams have sponsorship names kind of built in. Like a lot of a lot of outside of America, a lot of teams have this name of the sponsor um, built into the team name. 
And uh, originally they were uh, named for the Toyo Kogyo Company. Um, and uh, so they were the Toyo Carp. And then a, a couple of years later, Toyo Kogo became known as uh, Mazda. And uh, But they kept the team name as the Toyo Carp because that was, you know, and then um, they sold Mazda to, um, I forgot, to Ford or something like that. But they when they, they sold the... <coughs> They sold the company to to you know sold out the company, but the the family the uh, Matsuda family kept their shares in the team, and um, as such, they're the only one I think there, there's you know um, twenty eight uh, teams or so professional teams, um, and they're the only one that's privately owned. Most are corporate ownership, um, you know, not just. So it's not just a sponsor. It's not just like, oh, you know, some rich guy owns the team and, you know, a, a cheese company wanted to put their name on, paid a lot of money to put their team on the name for a couple of years. It's like the the, the teams are owned by the companies who, who are they're named after. And uh, so the Hiroshima Toyo Carp, or, or rarely just, they're just Hiroshima Carp usually. Um, they're, but they're, they're interestingly like an anomaly, almost like the Green Bay Packers are owned by a collective, you know, that same kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, that, that place holds a unique place. That team holds a unique place in, in Japanese baseball. And also, um, uh, Kitapepu played, uh, like he was drafted by them in 75, played his whole career, 76 to 94 for them, went to the broadcast booth, was a, was a kind of, uh, you know, uh, analyst, color commentator kind of thing for a couple of years, and then came in as the pitching coach from 2001 to 2004, all for the carp, just lived his whole life. Um, for the carp, and and I, I feel like we don't get that as much maybe here uh, because agreed. I mean, there could be cultural things that uh, you know a sense of community is is not as important to us. People are more you know the chasing the dollar here, whatever else. But uh, but I love seeing a player who's basically you know career begins and ends with one team, not for not against their will. I like it when it when a, <laughs> a player kind of is like, oh yes, like. This was my team, you know, and they're all in on the team spirit. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, um, Kitabepu, one of the one of the um, uh, one of the best to ever pitch in Japan, uh, passed away age sixty-five. 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 Wow, that seems pretty young. Um, I think it was uh, leukemia, something along those lines. He announced a couple years ago that he had um, mm-hmm. he, he was having health issues, and so it was yes. Um, um, I mean, he's, you know, just only retired from active baseball in 94. So, you know, he's 94. I mean, I guess that could be. But, um, yes, yeah, so, so Kitabepu, um, everybody check out some Japanese baseball. They really love it. <laughs> and it's really fun to watch. Have some so. carp in his honor. Uh, what about you, Alex? Who is your first honoree this week? Uh, I'm going to shine the spotlight on Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel hmm. Ellsberg, 7 April 1931 through 16 June 2023. He was a uh, former U.S. Marine and an economist, and but he's probably most famous for being, uh, I guess, one of the pioneering document leakers. Hmm. Uh, he uh, was working, uh, he'd worked for the Pentagon and the Rand Corporation, and uh, in the late 60s, he started becoming disenchanted dis- uh, with the U.S.'s uh, war policy, and he started becoming uh, 
something of a Vietnam, anti-Vietnam uh, war activist. And this culminated in 1971 when he and another fellow uh, took some uh, classified documents, what would be called, you know, come to be called the Pentagon Papers, and he uh, shared these to the uh, New York Times. And uh, the Pentagon Papers were basically sort of an internal memo discussing how the Vietnam War was probably not being, probably not able to win and uh, that it was basically a catastrophe. And this was meant only for government eyes, not for regular uh, people's eyes. And Ellsberg thought that uh, this was, his argument later on would be like classified, this was not classified to protect the people. It was classified to protect the government, which he said is right. not why things should be classified. Right. Uh, similar similar argument in a similar vein made in uh, Chelsea Manning's book that, uh, you know, the stuff that was going on, she wanted to kind of shine a light on the things that the people should know yes. that they're not being told. And it's not classified because it would hurt, you know, it's not getting, not a secret because it's, it, it would affect people's lives. It would affect, you know, security. It's just, a, it would be embarrassing. Yeah, the if, government trying to cover and, up its own uh, mistakes yeah. and uh, blunders. Yeah. Uh, it became a landmark case because uh, the um, Nixon administration sued the uh, the well the the Nixon administration said you can't you can't publish this stuff, and uh, they went to the Supreme Court with it. New York Times versus the United States, and that's when the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, decided that you know what you can't you can't stop a paper from publishing something, uh, even if it's classified. That's not. Uh, you know, that's hmm. that freedom of the press extends to that uh, far. And uh, of course, that is a battle that is still ongoing today, even though that case was settled. There's it's still not quite a, you know, black and white issue these days. Um, mm -hmm. This would also have a uh, uh, Ellsberg faced 115 years in prison for uh, espionage and treason. But the judge ruled that the uh, gross government misconduct in the case had decided that he uh, could not be prosecuted and the case was dismissed. He didn't uh, go to prison. He, uh, after that, he continued a life of political activism and uh, supporting other whistleblowers, uh, i.e. Chelsea Manning, uh, Licky, Wee Licky Weeks. Licky Weeks. <laughs> All those favorite. Uh, things. And... Um, but also it would have uh, other unforeseen consequences. Uh, Nixon was so angry about these government leaks that he just he, uh, became obsessed with ruining Ellsberg and stopping uh, leaks from coming out of the White House. So he started the elite plumber squad, plumber's mm -hmm. unit, which was in charge of uh, these kind of uh, things and ultimately would wind up... Um, in the, the Watergate scandal, the same plumbers would be involved in Watergate, which, of course, gave us the gate suffix, which I was surprised to learn even other countries use gate. I was surprised mm. there was a British uh, scandal that and they referred to it as gate. So, mm. uh, Nixon, your legacy lives on forever with your the crime <laughs> <laughs> that you do not want to be associated with. And St. Francis School of Law named Ellsberg the fourth most famous whistleblower in American history, so uh, fourth, yes, mm -hmm. I believe uh, Deep Throat, okay. Mark Felt okay. was number one, and uh, I did not write down the other ones, I mean, but uh, 
XYZ affair that was set up there. <laughs> Most of them were 20, 20th century people, like, you know, Karen Silkwood, etc., um, mm. etc. Et but uh, so there you go, Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, um, yes. Interesting. I wonder if the Watergate, because partially your knowledge of this era, you, this is one of your fortes, this mm -hmm. is your area of study. And I, it's all a blur to me. And yeah. so in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, Pentagon Papers, that's, that's part of that Watergate thing. And it, then it wasn't really, but it is in a sense. Like, it's all connected. It's sort of like the prequel telephone. to Watergate. But, yeah, right. It's the, the, the Pentagon Papers is the Hobbit to Watergate's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You'd watch, you'd watch the, the Watergate story and you'd be like, how did Nixon become so paranoid? Why was he so mm -hmm. obsessed with this? And you'd say, that's why we're coming out this prequel. The, mm. the Pentagon Papers. Actually, if you're curious, the uh, movie The Post, in which Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep play uh, newspaper people, uh, that is all about the publishing of the Pentagon Papers and, and so mm. on. So right. uh, in that sense, it's like a prequel to All the President's Men. So mm. uh, people should uh, check that out. And uh, shifting gears a bit, uh, you wanted to talk about uh, a butthole surfer. <laughs> It's quite a shift, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes, I uh, um, wanted a uh, tip of the hat to wish farewell to uh, Teresa Taylor, also known as Teresa Novo Nervosa, um, born uh, November 10th, 1962, and uh, just passed away uh, just a couple of days ago at the age of 60. And uh, she was best known uh, well, twofold, I think. A certain level of, of fame um, that uh, came to fame, let's say, uh, one of one of the drummers, one of two drummers um, for the Butthole Surfers um, between the kind of like the peak lineup of Butthole Surfers, like 83 to 89. Um, Teresa Nervosa and King Coffee were the two kind of two stand up drummers doing in the wow. this kind of like rolling rolling almost like the Burundi beat, which was kind of that, you know, uh, 80s. Um, you know, adamant, bow, wow, wow, kind of a thing with that mm -hmm. um, similar take on that. Um, and um, she was in the band throughout the 80s, except for a brief leave of absence to do some stuff. Um, and um, they um, uh, build themselves as, as siblings, King Coffee and Teresa Nervosa. They were not. <laughs> they were just kind of like, I don't know, for some reason that was that was just part of the mystique. Butthole Surfers, if you don't know them, are a... a um, um, unique uh, bands, almost you could say experimental. They just kind of they did what they wanted to do. They had a very um, uh, hard to define sound of just doing whatever they felt like, and and sometimes it was chaotic noise rock. Sometimes it was more melodic. Uh, eventually, as it got into the kind of as they got lumped in with the alternative scene, and they signed to a, a major label, which they got a lot of flack for, but. Uh, um, I think it was it was uh, Paul Coffey who was just like, "Are you kidding me? Like Capitol Record, like the label label that the Beatles are on wanted to sign me, and am I am I going to say no to that?" Like, but uh, then they they had they even they were produced by um, John Paul Jones, I think from from uh, Led Zeppelin, and they were um, yeah they they possibly not going to say sold out, but they kind of you know sharpened. Uh, they filed down some of those sharp edges uh, in a bit of an appeal to more mainstream audiences, perhaps, as time goes on. But still, 
um, enjoyable, listenable albums. Um, they just had less of that edge, perhaps. Right. I think they, most people, the most famous Butthole Surfer song they know is that uh, Pepper, which was their big hit. Um, but but uh, Teresa Nervosa did not play on that. She was not in the band at that point. Uh, she did come back for a bit in the in the two um, thousands, um, but in between, uh, after Butthole Surfers, pre return to the Butthole Surfers, she had a small role in uh, the nineteen ninety film Slacker. Um, she was the um, the woman with the kind of hat and sunglasses who comes up and tries to sell Madonna's Pap smear, um, and uh, in the credits listed as Pap smear pusher, um, <laughs> and um, if you've seen the movie Slacker, you remember it. If you've seen the movie Slacker on the shelf of the video store or in the DVD bin, you might recognize her because she's on the cover for the most part. The the poster and the and the um, home media uh, cover art all feature that kind of like her looking kind of wistfully towards the camera. It's, it's an iconic uh, um, shot. Did not put that together at the time um, that that was her because I was familiar with the butthole surfers i like them but i did not um did not ever see them live i have a, a an essay somewhere that is half-baked essay about three times i was supposed to see the butthole surfers and didn't hmm. um and over the course of the 90s um and uh and just never never got to see them live in their peak prime although actually by the time i would have seen them if she was already not there so um but uh, yeah. um, also, I, th- I think it's already done, but the uh, the funding for... There was a, a Kickstarter. Uh, Tom Stern, uh, Alex Winter and Tom Stern made the movie Freaked and, and uh, did a, a bunch of other things like The Idiot Box and MTV and stuff like that. Um, They're friends with the Butthole Surfers. They made a short film with them uh, at some point in the 80s. And um, Tom Stern is, is making a documentary about the Butthole Surfers. And it was, I believe... Fully funded on Kickstarter. Um, I know. I supported it. I got my rewards, and I think it's I think it's in progress. So um, keep an eye out for that um, <laughs> coming up because uh, I think she features in that, obviously. But but all surfers, not for everybody. But check them out, and if you like them, I think you will. What, <laughs> Alex? Who's your next person? Well, oh, I wanted to back up, Teresa. Tell just the the notable kind of long yet steady death process not to bring things down but <laughs> in in november of 2021 um she announced that she'd been diagnosed she had uh, kind of end stage lung disease and like hey I'm, this is it like i'm i'm uh, you know i'm on my way out and then uh, about a year later so it was like yep yeah, death is imminent and then um now you know that you know, six months to a year after that actually passed away. But that knowing like, well, this is, you know, you, I have a limited amount of time and that kind of like, uh, you know, compare and contrast. There was some, you know, uh, uh, some people kind of find that out and have a few, you know, months, weeks, whatever, but just kind of knowing that finding out like, yep, you're going to die from this sooner as opposed to later. And then getting a couple of years, um, I think I don't. I, I can't figure out if that seems ideal or if that seems like. Would I rather it just be quick and sudden, or would I rather like have enough time to be? Yeah, it's a it's um, a eternal debate. <laughs> yeah, I guess until you're there, you don't really know which one is the best, and I guess it's different for every person too. So, yeah, you know, um, yeah. But uh, anyway, that that uh, that aspect of her her passing kind of uh, 
struck a note with me. But uh, yeah, I didn't realize uh, that she. I was mostly familiar from the cover of the Slacker, uh, the movie poster or uh, DVD cover or whatever you want to call it. I would say that that along with that swimming baby from the Nirvana album cover are probably two mm-hmm. of the more iconic Gen X uh, mm-hmm. visuals. So yeah, because uh, you know Slacker for a long time became the kind of all-purpose. Uh, you know, pejorative for the Gen X people. That uh, sure. So um, it's yeah, kind of I, funny that she'll, she's probably more famous for that, or at least at one point was more famous for that than uh, than the music that she performed. So you, you, you can never pick what the thing is going to be that makes you famous, I guess. Yeah. Well, one person who did not have that problem was Glenda Jackson. She mm. was a uh, British actress and politician, uh, born May 9th, 1936, lived to June 15th, 2023. Uh, she was uh, probably the peak of her fame was probably the uh, the 70s. That's when she, uh, she won uh, Best Actress Oscars in 1970 for Women in Love, 1973's A Touch of Class. Um, but then, and she did a lot of Broadway in 1980. She was on the Muppet Show, so I'm sure that's how we've most of uh, many of us uh, <laughs> first encountered her. Uh, in 2018, she became the 17th actress to get the American Triple Crown of Acting. It's not the EGOT; oh, it's yeah. the Triple Crown of Acting, which is the Oscar, the Emmy, and the Tony Award. It's a I think is that not a three got when you're when you're like one away from an egot? Right? Oh, is that the, like is a, that the term for it? I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah. I feel like once you get th- three of them, you should automatically be like included in a project. Although you have right. to win it, right? You have to win the award. It's not like if you're in a movie and the movie wins the award, that doesn't count right. for you personally. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, it's a tougher. That's a tougher. So, um, so that, that's if you're if you are in let's say let's say you're in a band, okay. And um, you, I think, you know, you are releasing, let's say you're in a, it's a very, very refined set of uh, circumstances here. You're in a band, a major label band that you think might be putting out a terrific album. Okay. Take the opportunity, look up the people who are, who have uh, the, the acting triple crown, the three got, whatever. And, um, and I'd say include one of them as a producer on your next album, just, just out of the blue. You know what I mean? Just just call somebody up. Oh, hey, you've got an Emmy and a and an Oscar and a Tony. Oh, I see. Would you like to, Would you like to co-produce the next you know Maroon Five album? And and you know just have them kind of sit around and and uh, you know call them, use them as a consultant, whatever, yeah. but include them as a as a producer credit. I'm sure there are union rules that prevent prevent some of this from happening, but. Uh, <laughs> I like it though. I, I hope somebody. Yeah. Uh, although I was gonna say, I hope somebody tries it. But for all we know, someone already has done that. Well, I, could don't, be. I don't know yeah. all the EGOT winners, so uh, <laughs> we'll have to check if uh, Glenda Jackson was a producer mm. on the uh, uh, T Rex album, seventies. <laughs> uh, in twenty sixteen, she returned to acting, uh, playing King Lear at age eighty. Mm. Kind of a mm. uh, kind of. I think that is, might be the one that she won. Uh, one of her last uh, acting awards. Also noteworthy, uh, 1971, she played Queen Elizabeth I in not one, but two different unrelated films. And I always no. like when uh, actors play the yeah. same characters in different uh, different films. So uh, thanks for that, Glenda. And of course, the outlier in her career was from 1992 to 2015. She was a member of Parliament in the, the UK. So uh, 
kind of the uh, the gopher, the gopher root. Mm. Although I was, yeah, that was that <laughs> that was actor Fred, Fred Grandy. Was he gopher? I believe. Now I can't remember. Anyway, Sonny Bono, uh, right. the guy who played Cooter. Take your pick. Actors who went on to become <laughs> uh, politicians. And then she returned to acting, so that's kind of more unusual. There so, you go. Uh, Schwarzenegger, Glenda Jackson, gone but not forgotten. Hmm. And uh, well, another person who will not be forgotten certainly is, I believe, the historical figure you're going to tell us about now. Yes, we uh, we're going to open up the history books um, and look at on this date or this week in history who passed away, and uh, we're looking back to June fifteenth, nineteen ninety six. Uh, at the age of 79, we lost one Ella Jane Fitzgerald, uh, First Lady of Song, Queen of Jazz, Lady Ella, and uh, the uh, namesake of my wife. Um, <laughs> Ella Fitzgerald made her most important, uh, she made her, her big debut at the age of 17 uh, at the one of the, the very beginning of the amateur night at the Apollo kind of uh, set up. They, they, you know, the Apollo Theater was up and running. They were like, well, why don't we do have amateur night? People can just come up and do whatever. And uh, she went up there. She was all ready to do a dance performance. But um, like right before her, um, there's a, a, a dance duo went up and just killed it. And she was like, well, now I can't dance. What am I going to do? So instead she <laughs> sang a song and the rest is history. Um Wow. Then um, she kind of performed, made a... Um, was early details of her life are, are not um, super forthcoming. You know, she had a, a um, kind of a troubled... Her mother died from a car accident at some point um, in her teens, I think. And, and she was living with a stepfather, but then uh, went off to live with relatives or in an orphanage, possibly for a little bit. Um but after that, uh, after that successful debut, kind of managed to make a, a living as a kind of a gigging singer for a little bit. Um, then uh, up into 1935, uh, was introduced to uh, band leader, uh, drummer, I believe, Chick Webb, who was looking for a singer. And uh, at first was just like, you know, took a look at her and it's just like, I don't know, like she was kind of, you know, raggedy looking and, and uh, didn't look like the prototypical singer. Um, but then just uh, knocked out the performance um became the singer for the band and uh and took uh, took the world by storm in a sense the uh, the the became so entrenched with the band that after uh, uh chick webb died a couple years later about four or five years later they just renamed the band ella fitzgerald and her famous orchestra and she <laughs> she went and and took over um you know recorded a a, a ton of stuff with a lot of different famous artists um one of the one of the kind of landmarks was her songbook series she did the the kind of american songbook which not only is not only is it good music not only is it good fun to listen to um but it also there's uh, in the new york times frank rich was writing about how it's kind of the um said it's a cultural transaction as extraordinary as elvis's contemporaneous integration of white and african-american soul so it's kind of the flip of elvis taking black music and making it popular with a white audience. He says, here is a black woman popularizing uh, urban songs written by immigrant Jews to a national audience of predominantly white Christians. And so it's an, <laughs> another like reinterpretation of, you know, like watering things down and making it palatable for um, the populace at large, quote unquote. Um, but, uh, and that series was so successful and wildly, both artistically, 
kind of well recognized and also popular, which is which is hard to do. And and uh, you know she continued performing, I think, and well into her seventies. It was in the only in the nineties, like did she when her health started failing, she had uh, issues with diabetes and a couple of other things that. She did her last performance, I think, in the early 90s at some point. Um, one of her, her regrets over, over the course of her career, she never got a, uh, never got a chance to do a, a, an album, live or studio, um, with Frank Sinatra. They were friends. They got along really, really well. They appreciated each other's work. Um, they, every once in a while, they would, they would end up on stage together. They would do things. They never did, like, a... a full-on recorded concert together but they would pop up as you know guest performers or whatever else television specials uh, um but uh yeah they they loved working together and they're like one of these days we got to do an album and it just never kind of never came together um and uh, apparently complex contractual reasons Hmm. prevented that from happening which which goes to show you that uh business ruins everything (laughs) um Fourteen Grammy Awards, National Medal of the Arts, NAACP's inaugural President's Award. She also did a lot of work for um, uh, civil rights. You know, like like using her platform uh, in a way that you know, um, no performing to uh, well performing in places that would normally be segregated ballrooms, whatever else, and and saying they they can't be. You know what I mean? If if yeah. if I'm going to play here, it's going to be you know anybody can sit wherever they want, basically. Um, and um, eventually, the the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That's that's how much she was uh, appreciated. That's uh, that's a high ranking set of awards for for uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, long storied, important career, and uh, kind of I re- one of those uh, you know people that I think at the time. So ninety six, I was in my twenties and didn't you know. Didn't quite appreciate the uh, her her output until later. You know, there's a lot of um, there's an old adage that it's just like oh, you get. Uh, thankfully, it's it's less so um, now. I feel like there were two things. Like as you get older, you get uh, you you start to get more into jazz and you start to get uh, more conservative. And I, I feel like le- those are less uh, less stringent, less less uh, kind of set in stone than they once were. And I always kind of fought that urge to. Uh, yeah. No one to, gets into well, jazz both, anymore. luckily. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's I've I've dabbled in jazz over time, but I wouldn't say I've gotten you know I've got I haven't gotten wholeheartedly into it. But uh, I worked with a guy who was always on on um, uh, Saturdays on on uh, W. I think it was what was it on WBGO or was it on uh, one of the New York radio stations? Would always play Sinatra Saturdays, and they would. Um, play a lot of uh, American popular standards. I know it wasn't PGO because it was the. Uh, Whatever station it was, it turned into a Disney station a couple of years, uh, uh, some point in the 90s. They were just like mm. flip of the switch. And instead of it was American popular standards, exactly what the, you know, what Ella's songbook series was. And they played a lot of her on that station. And then one day they were just like, oh, sorry, like lost our lease, basically. And then like the next week it was a it was a uh, Disney radio hits station. And it was <laughs> it was unlistenable for somebody in their 20s like me who thought they were cool. But um yeah, exposed to exposed to her a lot from that radio station and from uh, um, just kind of musical exploration, and also then you know meeting my wife who who always has a soft spot in her heart for the woman she was named after. So, 
Uh, I also have a personal uh, connection. Uh, my wife and I, when we got married, we walked down the aisle to uh, her and to Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong's uh, Our Love is Here to Stay. So we always oh, yeah. have a uh, fondness for uh, Ms. Fitzgerald. Yeah. Well, thank you for um, that uh, blast from the past. We should all go listen to some uh, Fitzgerald today in her honor. And do um, it, make yourself a playlist mix of, of Ella Fitzgerald and Butthole Surfers and uh, <laughs> see if you don't get whiplash, but it's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I can't wait till AI is far enough along where we can actually mix them together and do a mm. uh, Butthole Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, all right. Well, I guess that will wrap up this week of honorees. Good luck, you all, across the Rainbow Bridge. If there's someone we did not mention, or if you want to call someone to our attention, you can find us on Twitter at Who Died Pete and Alex, and uh, we're also on the Instagram as well. Yeah. I want to clarify. Don't use that as corrections. Don't be like, oh, I can't believe you forgot this person. But you yes. can add your name to the. To the mix, be like, hey, I also, you know, hey, this person also died. Wanted to shine a light on them. Don't, don't yell at us for forgetting. Like we said, there's so many people die every week. We can't yeah. cover everybody, and there's some people that are just culturally don't uh, register for us that we might not know about. So, if you want to share somebody that you, uh, you know, that passed away this week that you uh, was important to you, please feel free in the comments below on YouTube or, or hit us up on social media. But don't, don't yell at us and say, ah, oh, I can't believe you forgot this person because it's. <laughs> Yes, and then when you are done not yelling at us, you can see us next week on another Who Died? Who Died? <laughs>